Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. We're in the month of August. You're with Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant, co-editors of that wonderful website and news service. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Who knows what Globetrotter is? Someday I'll explain it to you. We come to you every week, bringing you the world, talking to you about the issues that matter. Right now, perhaps the most significant development in international politics taking place in the Sahel region in Africa. Last week, um, the Sahel Presidential Guard, the Presidential Guard of Niger, moved against the sitting president and deposed him. Initially, the army decided to come out in support of the president and then backed the coup. Interesting, this is the fourth country in the Sahel which has been um, in this situation. Guinea, Burkina Faso, Mali, and now Niger. Four countries, important countries in the middle of this belt just beneath the Sahara Desert. Each of them has had at least one coup. In fact, Burkina Faso and Mali have had two of these coups. These coups are very similar in many respects. Firstly, they are deeply uh, driven by an anti-French attitude. These were all former French colonies, angry at the return of France and its military through Operation Barkhane in 2013. That deeply anti-French attitude was also driven by an anger at the fact that the French seemed to open the door through the war in Libya in 2011 for the arrival of various jihadi fractions, the Al-Qaeda groups and so on, which linked up with different separatists and pastoralists and so on, whether it's the Tuaregs of northern Mali or the Fulani of the central belt of many of these Sahel, Sahel nations. That advance of these Al-Qaeda forces uh, was quite severe. In Mali, perhaps 50% of the country taken over by Al-Qaeda. There was a feeling that these countries were being impoverished, not only by France, but by Western corporations. Niger sending uranium to France, one in three light bulbs in France powered by Niger's uranium, but Niger itself without electricity. Or countries like Mali, gold producers, but they have no gold reserves. Their reserves, 50% of it sitting in the French treasury because they use the French currency. Very little presence of a left, which is why much of this anger and animosity has been seen through military forces where young men, particularly from rural peasant backgrounds, small town backgrounds, angered with the situation, finding no other avenue to express their anger, go through the military to conduct these coup d'etats. Consternation in Africa. ECOWAS, the economic community of West Africa, quick to condemn the coup, so too the African Union, pushed back from the leaders in Burkina Faso and Mali saying, you condemn us for taking this action, but you don't condemn, and they use a strong word, the slavish governments of Africa who are subordinated by the West. Very strong response from these countries. Pressure on Niger, which cuts uranium exports to France, inclusive. Secondly, a pipeline supposed to run from the southern fields of Nigeria 
up towards Libya through Niger might be off the books. That was a kind of South Stream pipeline to bring natural gas to Europe. Will there be a military invasion of Niger by the West or by ECOWAS countries? Mali and Burkina Faso say, if you attack Niger, you attack us. Interesting moments taking place here where the ghost of Thomas Sankara seems to fly from one end of the Sahel to the other. People's Dispatch has been covering this. Globetrotter has been covering this. We're going to stay on this story. It's an important story. It has immense possibilities for the African continent. Not so many possibilities for the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the United States dropped nuclear bombs on those cities in 1945 uh, on August 6th starting. And hence, since we're at the cusp of that and there's a new film out on Robert Oppenheimer who developed that bomb, Prashant, how do we look back at those bombings, Oppenheimer, and of course the current situation in East Asia? Right, Vijay. I mean, uh, like you said, all the a lot of talk about the movie, which uh, you know tries to deal with the social, the social and political conditions of the time, the arguments around the war, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Important to note that uh, the uh, while the movie does you know discuss in various terms the horrors of the bomb, it really does not go deep into the people who were affected when the first test was for the first test, the Trinity test took place in New Mexico a couple of years ago. As part of the Globetrotter People's Dispatch Fellowship, one of our writers had an excellent piece on that. I urge everyone to check that out. But I think that, you know, uh, one of the important questions raised at that time, which was, that was there really a need to drop that bomb? And uh, of course, later studies, many analysis have proved that there actually wasn't really a need to drop those two bombs. It was as much the first salvo of the Cold War, uh, rather than an attempt to end World War II, which is what the United States has kept claiming all these years. But you know what, I think fast forward, you know, a couple of decades, many decades into where we are now, it's an extremely dismal situation. We remember the 60s and 70s and 80s when there was a very powerful anti-nuclear movement and even world leaders were convinced that, uh, you know, something had to be done about the situation. So even... Uh, uh, even during the Cold War, during that time of intense rivalry, you saw talks taking place, nuclear non-proliferation becoming being high on the agenda, people really raising that as an issue. Whereas today, uh, we have gotten, we have gotten in some senses of one level so much more used to the presence of thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons uh, in all, all with all major powers. Also important to remember that India has it, Pakistan has it, Israel. Uh, while nobody uh, nobody talks about it, but Israel has it. So you have nuclear weapons in all these, uh, in the thousands of nuclear weapons across the world and a security situation where there is sometimes very casual talk about the use of these weapons, despite the fact that, despite the annihilation it might cause. And I think it is in this context that we need to see the kind of rise in global tensions at various hotspots, especially in East Asia, especially in Southeast Asia that are taking place. Uh, another anniversary that passed is also, we need to remember the anniversary of the armistice of the Korean War, which was also towards the end of July. And uh, I think those who uh, read history will remember that at some point, at various points, US authorities did consider using a nuclear bomb during the Korean War as well, which shows, which clearly shows that as long as high tensions prevail, as long as there is a question of you know, uh, there are conditions created which 
which which can lead to war the threat of the deployment of nuclear weapons is always there uh, and you know sometimes all it takes is one as it's a mistake sometimes all it takes is uh, a moment of anger etc whatever whatever but in this context especially dangerous to see what is happening in east asia right now we have uh, you know a renewed rise of militarism both in south korea and japan the rise of very extreme nationalistic sentiments uh, the rise of you know uh, we had new us nuclear submarines visiting uh, the you know visiting south korea recently on the 18th of august we are going to see a summit with uh, the us south korea and japan where once again there will be a reiteration of uh, these ties of defense and this actually is extremely unfortunate because to be i think to be a bit uh, you know even a few years ago there was actually hope for peace in the korean peninsula when moon jae in was the president of south korea there were talks uh, uh, there was the pamunjom declaration for instance a lot of steps were being made to sort of ease tensions on the korean peninsula and within a few years we have completely reversed to a very heightened level of aggression and militarism that we have not seen in many many decades so we have on the one hand uh, the the uh, the east asia and korea and japan becoming a hot point we have on the other hand Taiwan becoming another hot point. All these, uh, you know, all these really lead to a huge amount of concern, considering the fact that everyone involved is all the key players involved are nuclear player powers at this point. So, I think this August sixth, more than many other Hiroshima days in the past, is a really a, you know is a moment to kind of take pass it back and take stock of where the anti-nuclear movement is, where the anti-war movement is, uh, and you, you know, I try to sort of. for people's movements especially i think it's a time when they'll be raising these demands because uh, a nuclear war is not just about two countries which are fighting against each other it has such a catastrophic effect as hiroshima and nagasaki points out it has long term effects as new mexico for instance shows the number of people who suffered from diseases across the world people who suffered from the impact of testing all this is really you know uh, these are disasters from which recovering is going to be very unlikely so i think a very important uh anniversary that we need to take note of quite right i mean the film oppenheimer not sure if it's opened in quito zoe lot of violence there in the lead up to the august 20th election looks like there's an interesting field in play but that violence election what's happening in ecuador Well as uh, viewers and readers of People's Dispatch would know on August 20th the people of Ecuador are headed to early elections um these early elections just to refresh people's memory are because Guillermo Lasso was facing an impeachment trial and the day the trial was uh, going to start the day before it was supposed to start as he had previously announced uh rather than face this trial and potentially be impeached and removed from office Uh, he said that he would rather uh, activate the cross death mechanism, which is a, a sort of dramatic name, but also dramatic uh, consequences. Which is that he then this dissolves the parliament, gives him powers to rule by decree, and uh, calls for early elections. Uh, and these elections were set by the National Electoral Council for August twentieth. Um, the process of registering the candidates already took place. They're in campaign now. um and at the same time it is a as you said a very 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 difficult situation for for ecuador um there have been uh serious concerns over uh violence across the country um the worst episodes have taken place within the country's prisons 
which is a phenomenon that has been uh, taking place for the past several years. Since 2021, almost 500 people have been killed in uh, what are called prison massacres, which is when a fight breaks out. Uh, there's no or little intervention by uh, security forces. There are conditions that have uh, inmates from maybe rival gangs, uh, rival groups in the same spaces with each other. And um, there have been, again, 500 people since um, 2021 that have been killed in these massacres. Extremely concerning. And just a week or so back, uh, more another uh, set of massacres took place. One lasted for three days in the littoral uh, penitentiary. At the same time, outside of the prisons, there were also uh, horrific acts of violence um, carried out again by drug trafficking groups. Um, and to circle it all the way back to Guillermo Lasso, um, despite him having throughout his time in office, as numbers of violent crime have been increasing uh, in the past five years, the, the homicide rate has actually multiplied by five. Um, so these are serious numbers we're talking about. Um, in his in his impeachment impeachment trial, he was actually under investigation because an investigative journalist uh, group essentially uncovered links between him and his government and uh, drug trafficking and criminal groups in the country. Um, so today he faces a very difficult situation um, in the sense that he <clears throat> again is now ruling by decree. He will leave office, uh, you know, in this year. But again, he, many people are quite upset with his government for not doing enough, for potentially having links to these groups. There were also rumors, um, and these rumors were essentially announced by gang leaders that they had in entered in negotiations with him and his government and that they had reached a peace agreement. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the main issue here is that Ecuador is in an even worse situation than it was under Lenin Moreno. We saw that under Lenin Moreno, an IMF loan was taken out Agreements were made with the U.S. government. Um, people saw their quality of life drastically decrease. Uh, and then the pandemic came. We saw those horrific scenes of bodies being on the streets of Guayaquil. Guillermo Lasso, the banker, wins the elections in 2021, defeating Andres Arauz. And the, the situation in the country has rapidly and very quickly deteriorated, with Ecuador being now one of the, the hotspots of violent crime and of drug trafficking in uh, the continent. So this is a seriously concerning. We also have seen a marked increase in number of Ecuadorians crossing the southern U.S. border. They make up, I think, 20% of those who are crossing. These are, you know, this is a serious impact. So these elections are even more uh, important in this context. The Citizens Revolution ticket with Luisa Gonzalez is polling at about 38%. They need over 40% with a 10-point difference to win in the first round. And uh, so we'll be following this August 20th, first round of Ecuadorian elections. Also, the parliament will be up for elections. So it'll be very, very interesting to see how this situation shakes out. Very important. Important to know you mentioned the Ecuadorians migrating out of the country. Uh, this election on 20th of August, um, there will be, I think, 13 million people voting in it. And a large number of them, Ecuadorians outside Ecuador. It's become interesting how democracy works with its diaspora populations and so on, raises interesting questions about citizenship. Um, you're with Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch, Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming at you with a series of important stories. 
Zoe was just talking about the situation in Ecuador, where there's an election on August 20th. You got to go up then um, and take a right turn, and you'll be in Cuba, which brokered the peace agreement between the Colombian government and the ELN. Well, for its pains, Cuba was then put on the US government state sponsor of terrorism list, quite ridiculous maneuver by the Trump administration. That peace agreement was signed, Zoe. Now what's happening between the ELN and the government? Well, in the last cycle of dialogues, the bilateral ceasefire was actually signed. Um, the, the peace, the total peace agreement is still pending, but the bilateral ceasefire, a very, very important advancement. This is the most significant agreement uh, in terms of ceasing hostilities between the two parts, um, really in the history of the existence of the ELN, the National Liberation Army. Um, this ceasefire went into effect as of yesterday, August 3rd, um, and there was a ceremony installing the Commission of Participation. Uh, so the ELN agenda for peace involves one of the key elements is creating spaces for the participation of society. And so um, with the effect of the ceasefire, of the ceasefire, and following uh, the agreements that came out of the Mexico round of dialogues, uh, you know, in the beginning of this year, uh, they installed this Commission of Participation. Um, this was with participation of uh, left-wing senators such as Ivan Cepeda. And uh, now for the next period, they will be developing a methodology um, for how to involve society in this peace process um, the, with the understanding that this is a peace process that um, if it wants to rebuild society, uh, which has been ravaged by war, um, there needs to be full participation of the citizens, of the organizations that have been organizing on the streets, that have been demanding peace, that have been demanding an end to paramilitarism. So this is a very significant development. And I think that, you know, when we saw the victory of Gustavo Petro last year and his commitment, him and Francia Marquez's commitment to total peace, it's, it's not just words. It's not just discourse. This is something that is being implemented in the actuality. This is having impacts on people's lives. These are historic advancements. So I think it's very important to, to really to really look at that and see that this is these are serious advancements for the country. At the same time, while yesterday was a historic day for peace, for advancing in this in this agreement between and hopefully reaching peace agreements uh, in the next coming period, uh, there was also a a fresh shall we say, destabilization attempt lodged against Gustavo Petro linked to uh, the arrest of his son, Nicolas Petro. Uh, he's being accused of money laundering and having, uh, essentially having illicit money uh, from drug trafficking groups. And uh, in classic lawfare fashion, a very, very, very determined right-wing outlet called Semana, which has We've talked about it a lot on this show. It's one of the most vitriolic uh, magazines in Colombia that has basically dedicated itself to attacking the left, to attacking Petro, to attacking all sorts of progressive leaders and proposals in the country. Um, this journalist has gone on the attack and said that um, Gustavo Petro uh, used these illicit funds that his son is being accused of in his campaign, uh, Nicolas Petro allegedly confessed to this in these preliminary hearings. Um, it's very, very, very concerning. Um, these these accusations, uh, they seek to essentially undermine um, Gustavo Petro's legitimacy. 
there has been a very, very strong response from the historic pact coalition from Gustavo Petro himself. He's calling on all forces to mobilize in defense of his government, alerting that these are tired recipes and formulas used by the far right to attack progressive governments. So uh, this is really a developing story. Uh, began last night. We'll be following it at People's Dispatch. Um, but very important, uh, when the right-wing media speaks and starts to attack, we have to question, we have to pause, and see really what's behind all of this. What's behind all of this? Who knows? What's behind all of this in Haryana? Um, you know, punctually in India, there are these um, conflagrations. In India, the term is communal riot. It refers to actually mostly Hindu nationalist attacks at Muslim populations. Prashant, once again, this time within driving distance from India's capital, New Delhi, terrible riots breaking out in the new district in Haryana, apparently almost five dead. What's been happening there? Why has the Vishwa Hindu Parishad returned? Where have they come from? Where have they been all these years? Question was whether they had ever gone anywhere at all. But I think that, you know, uh, this the incident that took place in Haryana, we have a, a very good report which actually details what happened. And in some senses, uh, to give a quick uh, update for our readers, what happened was that there was a religious procession that was taken out uh, in the days preceding the religious procession. There were videos by, uh, uh, you know, a couple of people, including one who had uh, who who is you know held responsible for the murder of two Muslim men, uh, who was part of a vigilante group. Now, many of these vigilante groups have been closely involved with the protection of what they call the protection. Uh, of cows, which often becomes an excuse for targeting people from minority communities, especially the Muslims, and also, in fact, disrupts the uh, economy of that region considerably. But in many parts of North India, cow vigilantism has actually become a big social problem, and it is not helped by the fact that there is often very little state or administrative action against those who indulge in it. So there was a video by one of the people who was involved, who has been accused in a couple of murders and is connected to these gangs. Uh, a very provocative video uh, the, uh, about this uh, procession which is going to take place. Once that video came out, there were responses from um, those, in that re uh, those in that region warning uh, the procession that was going to take place, you know, saying that, you know, be careful, don't come into the city, etc., etc. And obviously the procession did take place. There was uh, violence and uh, the exact chronology might be, you know, uh, is, is still being reported. Multiple, multiple reports have come out. But I think rather than go into the details, what this serves as is actually a microcosm for what is happening in uh, many parts of northern India and even, in fact, other parts of the country as well. Just a few. We, we, are, we, are, we are in the midst. Manipur is still in the midst. Northeastern state of Manipur is still in the midst of violence, which is once again a considerable amount leading the violence have, violence have been these vigilante groups, uh, you know, uh, espousing ethnic and religious superiority and a very strong anti, uh, you know, uh, say, uh, always having a very clear other community against which they stage these attacks. And I think that the kind of, you know, what we often, like you said, the term used is communal violence or uh, communal rights. But there is, there is a different structural aspect to it, which is that over the past many years, there has been an emboldening of uh, these kind of vigilante groups uh, who work, uh, you know, who seem part of the larger project of the Hindu nationalist project. And what has happened as a result of that is that in principle, uh, they uh, they seem to be getting a lot of impunity. 
there is where there's a lot of impunity very little accountability or they're often not arrested which basically gives them a free hand and uh, gives the message that what they are doing is acceptable in various ways and this is actually led i think to an escalation in these kind of uh, in these kind of violent acts a uh, real rise in fear and insecurity among uh, minority communities and even a rise in anger which is really uh, expected as well so overall there is this sort of there's this churning of social fault lines this widening of social fault lines which is taking place under uh, this government and under this government which actually has very uh, you know which probably very disastrous results for the country as a whole india has a long history of uh, you know communal and religious fault lines uh, fault lines on the lines of caste and uh, it has always been a big challenge for indian society to try to overcome these and often that have, those have not happened as well but what seems to be happening over the past uh, few years but especially in recent times is actually a widening of this you know much more strongly and uh, in many of these instances what happens is there is a bout of violence there are numbers a couple of deaths reported and then there is huge polarization between these communities communities which lived to lived with each other of with various degrees of tension uh, which is common and that's natural among communities but there often there is uh, say a complete withdrawal a separation between these communities which actually supports the project of uh, you know uh, in india being uh, that that these communities supports the ideology that these communities are separate it's not possible to sort of live together so actually that is the direction in which many of these incidents are taking society the question really often that is needs to be asked is what steps are the government what steps is the administration taking to prevent that when these videos came out when civil society warned that this uh, procession might uh, you know lead to a uh, dangerous situation were these warnings taken seriously enough and it doesn't look like that from the reporting that has happened because uh, i think many people have pointed out with various points that if the administration is decisive enough it can always stop a religious right or a communal right and every time a communal right or religious violence takes place it is also an indication that and this has happened in past administrations in many many administrations in the past it is always a sign that uh, for various political reasons the administration those in power would do not really mind this violence taking place or in some ways are encouraging it so i think that is a fundamental question that keeps cropping up each time such incidents take place in any part of india yeah and just to give one particular detail about the new district almost 80% of the population there are muslims and this was a highly provocative act by the vishwa hindu parishad to say we're going to march there to to in a sense reclaim hindu religious sites a highly provocative action which perhaps other governments might have said no you can't do that you just can't march there in that provocative way you got to perhaps talk to local leaders and so on none of those calming mechanisms were utilized and here you have this terrible conflagration once more punctually as it were um you know at the un there are frequent reports made by high officials of the un about the situation in the world i happened to watch a recent report made by rina ghilani now ms ghilani is an important figure in the un she is the un famine prevention and response coordinator the reason i wanted to bring this story up is she gave you know in the report the statistics about um how last year 250 million people suffered from acute hunger it's the highest you know it's been in a long time how almost 400000 people are facing famine conditions 
in seven countries, all of them in the midst of armed conflict. And she said 35 million people around the world are at the edge of starvation. You know, these numbers come every year and so on, and, and they're moving. And she basically pointed the, the finger at armed conflict as an important spur for, for great hunger. You know, the Sudan being a place where the UN has focused a lot of attention. But really, why I wanted to bring this story up is because I wanted to actually share with you Ms. Gilani's comment. And I want us to end the show with that. She said, I have sat with mothers in too many nutrition wards, in too many displaced camps. And as their small children fought for their lives, they were too weak to cry, even make a sound. That eerie silence is deafening. It never leaves you. And then from that, we get the idea that starvation is a kind of silence. It's a powerful, powerful intervention by Ms. Gilani to the United Nations. I hope all of you keep that in mind. You were listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. See you next week. Yeah.